I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means, for I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets, they have demolished your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened, as it is written. God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear, down to this very day. And David says, Let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. So I ask, Did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. Now if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Now I'm speaking to you Gentiles. Inasmuch then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous, and thus save some of them. For if their rejection means a reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump, and if the root is holy, so are the branches. But if some of the branches were broken off, and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant towards the branches. If you are, remember it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. Then you will say, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. That is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief, but you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Note then the kindness and the severity of God, severity toward those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise you too will be cut off. And even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in, for God has the power to graft them in again. For if you were cut from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted, contrary to nature, into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? Well, thank you to all those who've taken part in the service so far. Uh, And please do keep that passage open. As you can see, there's lots to think about, to talk about together afterwards. Um, And I'm going to lead us in prayer for God's help as we do that. Our Father in heaven, we do thank you that you are massively kind to your creatures, to us. And we pray now that as we reflect on this passage, you would help us to marvel more and more at your kindness 
the people who don't deserve it like us. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, there's an outline, as, as Amy said, um, which will show you where we're going tonight. But my question to begin with is this. Have you ever met a proud Christian? Have you ever met a proud Christian? Perhaps some of us, perhaps me, if we're being honest, admit that we meet a proud Christian every time we look in the mirror. It can be so easy, can't it, to have a kind of high view of ourselves but self-focused pride is corrosive to communities. We may have forgotten that a little because corporate life has kind of been on hold for, for us so long, hasn't it? Hard to remember what it's like to see other people. We went to someone's garden and the children didn't know what to do or think. But pride makes ugly work of communities, relationships. So friendship groups where people are putting others down to make themselves look good, well, pretty soon they'll fracture. Families really struggle when the children are competing to be the best. Marriages grow cold if one spouse always gives the impression that they never do anything wrong. It's always the other person's fault. And churches struggle when people think of themselves, not others, where people talk proudly of others, talk behind backs, not face to face. Pride is corrosive to communities. Or actually, I should say, a certain kind of pride is. Here's the thing. The Bible doesn't actually say that all pride is wrong. Romans does not say all pride is wrong. It all depends what you take pride in. Paul, the author of this letter, actually says more than once that he's proud. He's glad to be proud. He'll say in Romans 15, he's proud of the work he's involved in as he shares the gospel. He said in chapter 5 that we can all be proud, boast, in the face of suffering even. He said in chapter 1, I am not ashamed of the gospel. Quite the opposite. I'm proud of it. I'm eager to share it, confident in it. Paul is proud of Jesus and his work. By the end of these three chapters, chapters 9 to 11, he ends showing us his pride in God as he kind of bursts forth in this exaltation of how great God is. That kind of pride is brilliant. That kind of pride actually builds a church community, unites people in God and the gospel of grace. Because we live in an age that thinks very little about God, and the gospel of Jesus Christ, and very much about self. We're living in a time and a place that has enthroned the self. Who I am, what I think, what I choose, what I want, what I want to be, that's the centre of the universe. That's the ultimate value, the unchallengeable fact. Pride in self. All the way through Romans, we've been seeing that kind of self-made, self-confident, self-asserting kind of pride. It just does not fit with the gospel of Jesus Christ. See, the heart of the good news we've been hearing is, is that we're not okay on our own. Not by God's standards. My approach fails miserably. But, good news, we can be justified. We can be declared right with God through faith alone, in Jesus alone, By grace alone, him doing what I could never do, him paying the penalty I deserve. 
which does mean pride in myself or my accomplishments or my credentials or my exam results or my background or my performance or even my theological viewpoints or my church service. It just does not fit with the real message of Christianity. That's our fundamental issue tonight. What is our pride in? Is our confidence in ourselves or in God? Our background, our heritage, this particular local church and what we've done in the past? Or Jesus? A church full of people placing confidence in themselves, it does become a nightmare, really, pretty quickly. It does one of two things. It either splinters in on itself, kind of divided, competitive, factional, or subtler, but I think more ugly, sometimes it unites in judgmentalism to those outside. Just criticism of everyone else, a kind of self-satisfied, graceless, self-congratulations club. Isn't it good that we're not like them? We better close the doors, actually, because some of the wrong type might come in. Whereas a church that's humbled under grace, that places all of our confidence in Christ and his work, we become united across differences in type and background. We become united in reaching out to all nations, all classes, all cultures. And we become united in thankful worship of God. I've been saying for a while with Romans that it's a book that that's hopefully, God willing, going to produce all types unity, all nations witness, and all life worship. And that all flows from getting our pride in the right place. So, if you've got Romans 11 in front of you, or can reopen it, um, you can see that's the issue. That's where kind of Paul lands in application. Just look across to verse 18. He's speaking to Gentiles, to non-Jews, like most of us. Do not be arrogant towards the branches, that is, the Jews, the, the branches of God's family tree. If you are, remember, it's not you who support the root, but the root who supports you. Or verse 20, they were broken off because of their unbelief, but you stand fast through faith, so do not become proud, but fear. And then verse 25, the start of next week's passage, lest you be wise in your own sight. In fact, that theme carries on. If you just flick across, if you've got a Bible, to chapter 12, verse 3, as we go on into the kind of application section of Romans from 12 onwards, the very first idea Paul applies to, the first specific, 12, verse 3, is this. By the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment. That's the key application tonight. A sober self-assessment, not being proud in ourselves. As we're saying, for chapter 11, there are actually two big applications. Tonight, it's a smaller view of ourselves. Next week, a bigger view of God. Really, the whole chapter is building to this big view of God and his greatness, this, this burst of praise and worship at the end of the chapter. But they're two sides of the same coin, aren't they? Actually, the more I realize how small and needing of mercy I am, the greater my praise and worship and thanks of God and his mercy will be. So then, let's dive in and see how this chapter will humble us. And if you've been around Romans kind of all year, if you've been studying it in small groups with us, you may be thinking, well, hang on, hang on, hang on. Didn't we do pride? Like, 
As in, didn't we, didn't we cover the fact that we have no reason to boast? Wasn't that chapters two and three that kind of even the best of our good performances and good works isn't enough? And actually, once you've been saved by the cross, whether Jew or Gentile, there's no reason to boast. Haven't we heard this before in Romans? Well, yes, we have. But pride runs deep. And so the Lord wants us to hear it again. And actually, in chapter 11, there's a different reason for being humble. I think it's a reason we don't often think about, maybe even don't know about. We may not know this chapter of the Bible very well. It's, it's easy to kind of skip past chapters 9 to 11 of Romans, and partly because of some of the topics in there. God's sovereignty can be hard to think about. That's why we've got the Q&A later. And the kind of role of Israel in history, we can think of it as kind of maybe something that a few people are really interested in, but it's irrelevant to the rest of us. But do you remember who Paul was speaking to in verse 13? Now I'm speaking to you Gentiles. Not actually Jewish people, or if you have a particular interest in Jewish history, no. The whole Gentile church needs to know this, as in all of us need to know this. Need to know our place in the story of Israel. Actually, the, the fate of Israel is precisely where this chapter begins with. Uh, 11 verse 1, I ask then, has God rejected his people? Tonight, in, in terms of the flow of the talk, we've got two questions and one olive tree. So two questions and then an illustration. The first question, verses 1 to 10, is, is this. Has God rejected Israel? Now, if you've been tuning along with us on these Sunday evening series, hopefully it makes sense why um, Paul is asking this question. But if it is your first time, um, I'm going to put recap on the screen with some slides. Um, and this may be helpful even if you've been around but could do with a refresher. Um, so basically, the topic of chapters 9 to 11 is Israel. What has happened to Israel? And particularly, why are, not, why are more Jews not trusting Jesus if he is their promised Messiah? And actually, that presenting question really begins to raise questions about God. Because didn't God make promises to this people group? Aren't these his special people? So actually, has God been faithful? What does it say about his character his promises. Can you really trust him? Now, to answer that big question, firstly, the first kind of big step in the argument was Romans 9. That's a picture of a camera, if you can't tell. Romans 9 shone the camera on, on God and said, has he broken his promises? Has he been faithful to his word? And the answer was, it's categorical. He's been faithful and merciful, and he's sovereign. It's his choice whom he chooses to save. Why is that not fair? Well, because none of us deserve blessing. Mercy is different to justice. God chooses to have mercy. That's chapter 9, the camera on God, utterly consistent, never broken any promise to his people. But it's still a puzzle why so many Jews reject Jesus while so many Gentiles, non-Jewish people, the nations, are trusting in Jesus. Like it does seem kind of back to front. They didn't have the Old Testament. We didn't really have a clue and weren't necessarily trying to get right with God. And now suddenly loads of them are saved and very few of Israel in Paul's day. But what's going on? Well, um, God has been patient, but the reality is, as you point the camera at Israel 
This is Romans 10, as Jay helped us with uh, last week. As you point the camera on Israel, you see a human response to God that again and again takes offense at the gospel offer, seeking to uh, establish their own righteousness. They rejected Jesus. In fact, uh, chapter 10, verse 21 puts it like this. Of Israel, God says, all day long, I've held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. Disobedient and contrary. And the point there, you might begin to think, well, is that it? Kind of where we left chapter 10, you might think, well, have they missed their chance now, or their many chances? Kind of, does Israel have a future, or is that game over? God's rejected them and moved on to the nations. And that's what chapter 11 is going to answer. So chapter 11 is going to point the camera at how God is working between Israel and the nations through history, through salvation history since Jesus. And it is important for us to get our heads around this. Um, I mentioned earlier that chapter 11 is sometimes the place people come who have a real interest in the history of Israel. And there are all sorts of different views out there. Some people teach that Gentile nations have completely replaced Israel. So there's no future, no significance, no saving plan for Jewish folk anymore in God's purposes. So there's no point sharing the gospel, for example, with neighbours from a Jewish background. This view says... Well, they blew their chance. And we Gentiles have proven to be more receptive to this good news, more willing to submit to God's righteousness. Well done, us. Let's just concentrate there. That proud attitude is the opposite of this chapter. And the idea that God has moved on forever from ethnic Israelites is not what this passage teaches. Again, quite the opposite. Others, at the other end of the spectrum, think that Israel here must refer to a political entity like the nation-state, and they'd be really excited when that nation-state in 1948 was founded. Here we go. Here, here are God's promises coming to fruition. The nation of Israel is going to be rebuilt with its city walls and its temple and its priesthood and its sacrifices. But that is not what this chapter is about. And actually, it misreads a number of Old Testament promises. It, it handles bits of the Old Testament in a way that Jesus didn't, nor his apostles. See, Israel does have a future in this chapter, but it's not a political discussion. We are talking here about eternal salvation, the eternal salvation of people, individual Jewish people being saved through Jesus. We can be sure that's what we're talking about because do you remember chapter 10, verse 1? What Paul's desire is in these chapters. 10, verse 1, brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be formed into a new political entity. <laughs> no, they may be saved. That's what Paul cares about. He wants them to benefit from Jesus' saving work. That's what he's in anguish about. So from verses 11 onwards, we're going to look at the future of Israel. We're going to see how that salvation is going to come. Actually, before we even get there, verses 1 to 10 talk about the present. 
And we'll take down those slides um, so you're not distracted by the pictures. But um, verses 1 to 10 uh, talk about the present. And Paul wants to point out that God hasn't completely rejected Abraham's blood family, even in his day. Notice that? Um, Verse 1, I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means, for, here's the evidence, I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God's not rejected his people whom he foreknew. And obviously, it's not just Paul. I mean, all of the apostles were Jews. Many of the earliest converts were Jews. The crowds at Pentecost, for example. A number of the folk in the Roman church or known to them were Jews. We know that because in chapter 16, we hear lots of Jewish names. God hasn't completely rejected his people. In fact, says Paul, this is similar to the time of Elijah. Elijah lived at a time when when God's people were turning away from him as the living God, turning to idolatry, turning to Baal worship. And Elijah thought he was the last man standing. Maybe Paul had some sympathy being chased from town to town. It was often um, Jewish antagonists who were chasing him out of town, causing riots. But God's answer to Elijah and to Paul was really clear. Have a look at it. What is God's reply, verse 4, to Elijah? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. And Paul says it's the same in his day. So too at the present time is a remnant chosen by grace. So there's the first part of the answer. Has God rejected Israel? No, not completely. He's kept a remnant for himself. Even in that first generation of the gospel, a number of Jews have indeed believed in Jesus. Actually, if you're a Jewish Christian listening in the Roman church, just imagine that for a moment, and it's read out, I think this passage is still deeply humbling for you. I mean, you must have been on the edge of your seat. All since chapter 9, you've agonized, no doubt, like him, over friends and families not trusting in Jesus, wanting to understand why they don't, wondering if there's any hope still, which chapter 11 will go on to explain. But actually, Paul says, first and foremost, before we get on to them, well, just let me give you a reminder about you. Where do you stand? Why do you stand? Did you notice the reason given for why there's a remnant? In Elijah's day, it wasn't because some people were better than others. It was because God kept for himself 7,000 believers. In Paul's day, there is a remnant chosen by grace. Paul draws out the point, verse 6. If it's by grace, it's no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would not be grace. So if anyone here is tuning in from a Jewish background, the reason why we are adopted as part of God's family is because of God's grace. Not actually our bloodline or our quality, our family stock, our performance. The merciful, sovereign grace of chapter 9 is anyone's hope. And actually, that becomes particularly clear when Paul spells out the other side of the story of what's happening to Israel in the present. This is verses 8 to 10. We saw back in chapter 9 this pattern in 
Exodus that God can have mercy on whom he'll have mercy and harden whom he'll harden. Then it was Pharaoh who got hardened and Israel and others were rescued by mercy. But here in verses 8 to 10, and it's very sobering, God makes it clear that in Paul's day, God is hardening Israel, his own people. Again, it's not out of the blue. God warned about it in the Old Testament in Isaiah. In fact, Isaiah warned that in many ways, the most serious of judgments coming upon God's rebellious people would be hardening. Hardening, blind eyes, deaf ears, so that, so that people can no longer even hear the call to turn round, no longer even see the, the salvation that's being offered, no longer do anything but fight God blindly on. It is a desperate state. And actually, as crowds bayed for Jesus' blood that first Easter and then bayed for his followers' blood a, a few weeks later and, and months later as they spread the good news of forgiveness, that is exactly what we saw happening in history. So last week, we, we spoke of this willful refusal to respond to God, but here we have a matching judgment from God a hardening of hearts, a confirming someone in their rebellion, a handing someone over to the consequences of suppressing the truth. Like Pharaoh, who would not listen, like humanity as a whole, who've suppressed the truth. It is a, it's a terrible judgment when God hands someone over to blindness. And it is a pretty dark picture some ways that question we had at the start of, well, does this mean it's all over? Does this mean God's given up? Is it the end of the road for Israel? Apart from that tiny remnant of Jewish believers, is there any hope beyond? Well, that question now is surely being asked with tears from the Jewish believers in Rome. And that's the question of verse 11. So I ask, this is our second point. Did they stumble in order that they might fall? Or in other words, does God have any greater purpose in this act of hardening? Was this just hardening for hardening's sake? Is it, is it purely justice judgment? Or does God have a greater purpose? And now we start to get to unfamiliar but absolutely amazing territory. In the next few verses, Paul's going to pull back the curtain on what God's doing in salvation history. He's going to show us how God is interweaving the history of Israel with the history of the nations, the Gentile non-Jewish people like most of us. The picture is absolutely remarkable because we're going to see that Israel rejecting Jesus and God reinforcing the hardness of heart is actually the, the catalyst of salvation spreading spreading to the Gentiles, and then that's going to kind of rebound, bounce back to cause a number of Jewish people to turn to Jesus and be saved. It's absolutely extraordinary. Like with Pharaoh, God's not just hardening. He's working to save many. God is working through the animosity of individuals to save the nations and to save many in Israel. It's absolutely extraordinary. So there's a pattern in here. Um, I'm going to put it on the screen um, so that we uh, are able to get our heads around it. Um, it's actually, it comes three times in, um, 
It comes three times in this passage. The first one is in 11 to 12. So in 11 to 12, you get these three steps. First, step one, Israel mostly rejects the gospel of Jesus. That's step one. Uh, That's what we see when Jesus arrives. It's what Paul knows from experience as he got chucked out of synagogues. He got chucked out of towns when he went with the good news of Jesus. Actually, as that happened, well, the gospel is driven out to the nations, driven out of Israel. If you were around for our series in Acts 1 to 13, Luke's sequel, you will have actually seen that happening in practice. So Jesus had a plan for the gospel to go from from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the ends of the earth. That was the plan. But how did the plan happen? Well, by Christians being persecuted, Stephen being martyred, and then a huge antagonism against the early church, which drove out the message to the surrounding nations. That's what verse 11 here is talking about. Um, Just halfway through, have a look. Their tre- um, sorry, their tre- through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles. It's extraordinary when God uses rebellion to bring salvation. A bit like when the, the um, patriarchs, the brothers of Joseph, tried to get rid of him. Hostility towards him, and it proved to be salvation to many in Genesis. Or Pharaoh's hostility to losing his slave labor ended up being salvation for many. Well, so here, God using rejection, refusal, blindness to spread the gospel and save more. And that is what happens next. Many in the nations respond to the gospel and are saved. But notice this, and this is important. Step two is not the end of verse 11. It is not the end of the story. There is another step in the process. So I'll read it again. Through Israel's trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. It's clear that the Gentiles being included don't end the story. That kind of mass inclusion, actually it's designed to produce another arrow, designed to cause Israel to be jealous of what the Gentiles are enjoying. I'm not sure whether that jealousy is kind of angry, a bit like the reaction we saw in chapter 10. How dare it be that, that it's just so easy for these Gentiles to come in? I mean, they're not even trying. What is this salvation by faith? It might be that. Or it might more positively just be a longing. I wish I could enjoy something that those local churches seem to have. In lots of ways, they're modeling the loving community of God's people that the Old Testament always wanted. I want some of that. It's one of the reasons why how we behave to one another is so important. So important in Romans. It's one of the reasons why chapters 12 to 16 will focus a lot on that. We must not be a church of proud people falling out with one another. But either way, whether it's through anger or through longing, this jealousy now leads to more in Israel being saved. Now, there's some debate about whether that's a kind of mass turning to Jesus at the end of human history, a kind of historical moment at the end, or if it's an ongoing process happening at the moment. 
Personally, I think it's probably an ongoing process because of what Paul says in verses 13 to 15. Let me just read them again. And notice the present tenses. Now I'm speaking to you Gentiles. Inasmuch then as I'm an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. There's step one and step two again. Verse 15, their rejection of Jesus means the reconciliation of the world. But then, verse 13 says, Paul's aware his, his ministry will cause some to be jealous and so be saved. Now, this isn't just hypothetical. Like, Paul knows this is what's going on. Uh, his increasing infamy in Jewish circles is actually one of the ways in which his countrymen are hearing about Jesus. They're hearing what he's doing what he's offering, who he's offering it to. And strikingly, out of love for them, out of a deep desire for salvation to flow to many in Israel, he magnifies his ministry. That is, he doesn't go around quietly. He's not under the radar. He's not just whispering the gospel in the corners. He's, He's out in the open, unashamedly proclaiming the gospel, unashamedly making clear that the gospel of righteousness by faith alone is for anyone and everyone. He knows that is the message, the precise message that could get him killed. It's also the message that could get anyone saved. Amazing, really, Paul's love. I've been reflecting on this. He stood there sharing this good news to hostile crowds knowing that being clear about God's offer to all would enrage some of them more, but also knowing that some of those very people would be saved. And so he did. There's the pattern. God is interweaving the salvation of many from Israel and many from the nations together. Now, it's not that God had to make room for Gentiles by kind of clearing the decks a bit. Some people have asked that question, and we'll talk about it in the Q&A session. It's not a kind of one-in, one-out policy, and God has plenty of space. No, he has a different purpose for running his plan this way. We'll see it next week, and do come back next week, and when we'll be looking at the final section, at 25 to 32, the final time we see these three steps. But the key point here is that God has not given up on Jews. He plans to save many of his historic people through Jesus, through the most surprising of ways, through the gospel going to the Gentiles. So that's what he's saying in that section. I hope you're still with me. I know it's late on a Sunday evening and the sun was shining earlier, but please keep tuning in because we need to know why we're being told this. Remember, he's speaking to us non-Jews, verse 13. I'm speaking to you Gentiles. This is something we need to understand. But why? Well, because we need to realize that Israel were there before us and more of Israel will join after us, which means we are just one gracious extra link in the chain. We're just one step in the process. 
if we didn't know about box three on that diagram, we might think that everything was designed to get me in, to headhunt me. It'd be easy, in fact, to listen to chapter 10 last week and think, well, well, they blew it. I mean, they really blew it. They trusted in their own works, their own righteousness. They rejected Jesus, the cornerstone. I mean, no wonder God gave up on them. But we, we Gentiles, on the other hand, well, much less information, didn't have the Old Testament, but much better response... Maybe we're the ones that God's kind of really interested in. Their rejection, just a step in the process of saving us. They've been subbed. We're the finishers. The real deal. And Paul says, no. God's not finished with Israel. And you Gentiles are one step in the salvation plan, not the pinnacle. Don't be proud. Don't think that you're something better that's come along. We too only stand by God's grace. As verse 16 puts it, they are the root, you are the branches. And just finally, as we begin to draw to a close, that olive tree illustration in verses 17 to 24 is is driving home exactly that. As Gentiles, we're we're the wild branches. We've been grafted into the family tree of God's people. It's not that we naturally belong there. We've been added by grace. Verse 17. If some of the branches were broken off and you, though a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant towards the branches. If you are, remember, it's not you who support the root, but the root who supports you. Then you'll say, my branches were broken off that I might be grafted in. That's true, they were broken off because of their unbelief, but you stand fast through faith, so do not become proud, but fear. That is, don't dare to start to think that I'm naturally better or wiser or more humble or more deserving or more amenable to salvation than them. There is one thing that keeps you in this tree, and it's faith. In Jesus, empty handed faith in Jesus alone, God's grace alone. Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. After all, remember, it was failure to accept that truth that led to some from Israel being cut off. And it's all too easy for us unnatural branches were we to stop trusting Jesus to experience the same. I mean, we should not be thinking, well, God is lucky to have me. No wonder I got headhunted into the church. I don't be arrogant. I think actually this is sobering to groups of people or nations as well. Just pick Scotland, for example. Over the last few decades, there's been a widespread rejection of Jesus. I don't think we should be that surprised if God were to act in judgment against a nation like that. We mustn't assume that because of a rich heritage, Christianly, that God would never judge this land. As if the land of the book or the church in the UK or the West has some kind of natural right to flourish. Now, wonderfully, God is kind and merciful And we can cry out for him to have mercy on our nation. In his kindness, he is still spreading the gospel to all nations. But we are the add-ons as Gentiles. Part of the plan, yes, but late arrivals. 
We mustn't ever come to God with a sense of entitlement as if he owns us, owes us. You know, kind of, come on God, it's Scotland, it's Great Britain. Think of the reformers, think of the Westminster Confession, think of the historic churches we had. I mean, after all, wasn't the Bible written in English? No, actually, it wasn't. We're reading in translation. Wasn't Jesus, you know, Western or, or maybe even American or, or perhaps English? No, he wasn't despite the white figurines and nativity displays and stained glass windows, he and all the apostles and all the patriarchs were Jewish. Theirs is the family tree. We're grafted in by grace. So don't be proud. Not proud in ourselves, not proud in our backgrounds, not proud in our church affiliation, not proud of our evangelical tribe or our theological heritage or our current orthodoxy, not proud of Christian families, even if our one goes back generations, you know, the kind of he's a good Christian stock. Don't get me wrong, it's, it's right to be really thankful for Christian parents, for Christian grandparents. But we should never be complacent because of them. We stand fast in faith, not bloodline. And Gentiles, of all people, should understand that. As verse 35 puts it, and we'll think about this next week, who has ever given a gift to God that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. See, pride per se is not wrong. It all depends what you have pride in. Throughout Romans, Paul's told us to have pride in the gospel, the good news of Jesus. A Christian who's understood the gospel should never be proud of themselves because all of us, whether Jewish or Gentile background, are saved by mercy. As we head into this Easter period, let's reflect on that. We needed Jesus to go through Gethsemane, to go to the cross. We were spliced into his family tree by grace. And actually that is what will unite us. Unite us in humble service of one another. Unite us in witness to the world, to every nation, Jew and Gentile. And unite us in worship of the living God. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we do thank you for this extraordinary insight into what you're doing through history. And we recognize that we are the recipients of it, not because we deserve to be, not because we're entitled to your favor. We thank you so much for your gracious kindness to us in Jesus. And we do pray that you would help us to keep trusting in him alone. And we pray our, that would give us a humility about ourselves and a wonder and pride and praise in you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we have a moment now to rejoice in that very God of the gospel. Um, so we're going to um, stand if you can at home or want to, but please do sing if you can. My heart is filled with thankfulness to him who bore my pain. Let's sing together. Well, thank you very much for joining us this evening. Just a reminder that straight after this, there's the uh, update on our opening up after lockdown, and that will be on Zoom 
And then straight after that, the, the question and answer session on Romans 9 to 11. Um, but let me close us with a verse from Romans 11. Who has known the mind of the Lord or been his counsellor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen.